Thanks, Rob. Good morning, everyone. My name is Matthias. Um, I uh, will be reading uh, God's Word for us this morning. Can you please open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 26? Uh, we're going to look at verses 36 to 56. That's Matthew chapter 26, verses 36 to 56. It can be found on page 854 in the Church Bibles. Uh, let me pray before I read. Father God, thank you so much for your word. Please speak to us the word. For Jesus' sake. Amen. Then Jesus went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to them, Sit here while I go over there and pray. He took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee along with him, and he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. Going a little farther, he fell with his face to the ground and prayed, My father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. Then he returned to his disciples and found them sleeping. Couldn't you men keep watch with me for one hour? He asked Peter. Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. He went away a second time and prayed, My father, if it is not possible for this cup to be taken away, taken away unless I drink it, may your will be done. When he came back, he again found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy. So he left them and went away once more and prayed the third time, saying the same thing. Then he returned to the disciples and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Look, the hour has come, and the Son of Man is delivered into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go, here comes my betrayer. While he was still speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, arrived. With him was a large crowd, armed with swords and clubs, sent from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now the betrayer had arranged a signal with them. The one I kiss is the man. Arrest him. Going at once to Jesus, Judas said, Greetings, Rabbi, and kissed him. Jesus replied, Do what you came for, friend. Then the men stepped forward, seized Jesus, and arrested him. With that, one of Jesus' companions reached for his sword, drew it out, and struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his ear. Put your sword back in its place, Jesus said to him. For all who draw the sword will die by the sword. Do you think I cannot call on my father and he will at once put at my disposal more than twelve legions of angels? But how then would the scriptures be fulfilled that say it must happen in this way? In that hour, Jesus said to the crowd, Am I leading a rebellion that you have come out with swords and clubs to capture me? Every day I sat in the temple courts teaching, and you did not arrest me. But this has all taken place, that the writings of the prophets might be fulfilled. Then all the disciples deserted him and fled. Good morning, everyone. 
my name is Andy. I'm one of the pastors here at City on a Hill. A really warm welcome if this is your first time with us. Um, it's great to have you here. It'll be helpful to have Matthew 26 open in front of you. Um, I feel like we're on sacred ground here as we see the Son of God pouring out his heart before his Father. Uh, so how about we pray to our God as we come to this word now. Almighty God, thank you for sending your Son to live among us, to show us perfect humanity and to die for us that we might live. Thank you for sending your Son for our sake. We pray that this morning as your word is opened, that your spirit would be at work, that you would convict us of the truth and that you would shape our lives around your word and your will. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I wonder how would you go facing your own death? Uh, as part of my work in the hospital, I often see people, whether they know it or not, who are in the last days or perhaps even hours of their life. In fact, just this week, I witnessed someone pass away right in front of me. Now, it's not something you see very often, and it's confronting, isn't it? As people face their impending death, there's a wide spectrum from dreadful fear and avoidance of the topic at any cost to frank and open acceptance. Uh, by the time someone's in their 90s, which are most of the patients I see, they've got various organs failing, usually joints aching, and usually they're very ready to go. Often it's their loved ones that are holding on to every last moment. But I've never met someone so jovial facing their death as the philosopher Socrates. Have you heard this story? The, the great philosopher Socrates was put on trial in 399 BC for corrupting the youth. And so he's condemned to death by having, having to drink this cup of poison, this cup of hemlock. And Plato, one of Socrates' students, he records his last moments. Plato describes Socrates surrounded by his friends and students, and they've said their goodbyes, and so Socrates insists that the poison be prepared and the cup be brought. And one of his companions says, but the sun hasn't set yet, there's still time. And Socrates says this, I do not think I should gain anything by drinking the poison a little later. I should only be ridiculous in my own eyes for sparing and saving a life which is already forfeit. And so he's handed the cup. And to quote Plato's account, in the easiest and gentlest manner, without the least fear or change of color or feature, he took the cup. Then raising the cup to his lips, quite readily and cheerfully drank off the poison. Now, all of Socrates' companions lose it. They break down weeping. You can see some of them in the painting. And Socrates alone retains this calmness. What is this strange outcry, he says. I have been told that a man should die in peace. Be quiet then and have patience. As the poison starts to have its effect, he covers his face to save the onlookers seeing what happens. 
Uh, but then, but then he, he, he uncovers his face for a moment and says, Crito, I owe a rooster to Asclepius. Will you remember to pay the debt? And he covers his face up and dies. Now, when you look at how Socrates faced death, well, it kind of makes Jesus look like a bit of a coward, doesn't it? Jesus faces his own death with such terror and sorrow. Did you see the depth of his torment here in verse 38? My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Jesus is so utterly overcome at the thought of what he's about to face that he's almost dying of sorrow. And he falls face down to the ground and begs God to find another way. So why this difference? Why is Jesus so overwhelmed by his impending death while Socrates flippantly asks one of his friends to make sure that a rooster is paid off? I mean, isn't Jesus the Son of God? Isn't this the guy who was on a boat in a storm surrounded by fishermen, experienced fishermen who thought they were going to drown because the storm was so rough and he's asleep? Do you want me to switch to the lectern? Yeah? Okay. And then he, Jesus gets up and with a word he calms the storm. It's not a coward. It's not a powerless person. Isn't, isn't this the guy who effortlessly cast out demons from a guy who no one wanted to come near, a raving madman? Isn't this the guy who raised people from the dead? And he's already predicted that he's going to rise from the dead. Jesus is going to conquer death, and he knows it. So why was he so sorrowful and troubled about his death? Was Jesus just a bit soft compared to Socrates? Or is it possible that their cups were filled with a different kind of poison? You see, my hope this morning is that as we look at this scene in the Garden of Gethsemane, as we see what terrified Jesus in those hours before his death, if we see what he went through and why he went ahead with it, my hope is that we would grow in our love and our awe of Jesus and our appreciation of what he's done for us. So if you were here last week, you'll remember that Jesus has just shared his final meal with his disciples. And at this meal, he tells them of his coming death. He told them that this very night, one of them will betray him. They would all fall away on account of him. And they say, not I, not I, Lord. But we see all these predictions play out in this scene. And in a little olive garden in Gethsemane, Jesus goes there to pray. And as he does that, he becomes deeply troubled, overwhelmed with sorrow. And just as he predicted, despite all their assurances to the contrary, his disciples let him down, and eventually they desert him. In his darkest hour, when Jesus needs the most, his closest friends, Peter, James, and John, they can't even stay awake to keep watch. 
Meanwhile, Judas, one of his disciples, one who walked with Jesus, who ate with him, who watched his miracles, he's off telling the chief priests where to find him. And then he rocks up to the garden with an armed mob and with such horrible irony, betrays his friend with a kiss. Then as Jesus is arrested, one of the other disciples resorts to violence to try and take control of the situation. But then Jesus tells them to put the sword away and they're stumped. They don't know what to do. So they do the very thing each of them promised they would never do. They run off and abandon Jesus. You see all the weakness of humanity here, don't you, in the garden? The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And in a way, I think when Jesus says these words to Peter, James, and John, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. I wonder whether he includes himself in that. Jesus is feeling the weakness of his own flesh here, breaking under the pressure. But unlike the disciples who give in to temptation, Jesus remains without sin. You see, Jesus enters into human weakness, into our weakness. So if you're ever overwhelmed with sorrow, maybe you're in the midst of sorrow right now. Maybe it will happen in the future. Jesus has walked this path before you. He knows what you're going through. He enters into our weakness. And he also shows us what to do with weakness. See, instead of sleeping, when you should be standing watch, instead of betraying your friend out of bitterness or greed, instead of resorting to violence in a crisis, instead of running away when it gets too hard, in his darkest hour, Jesus is left alone, betrayed, abandoned by his friends. He turns to his heavenly Father in prayer. He gets down on his hands and knees and he pours out his heart to God. But even as he prays and pleads, he entrusts himself to the Father. Yet not my will, but yours be done. We'll get to more on this prayer in a moment. But what a great model of how to handle sorrow Jesus is. Pour out your heart to your heavenly Father and entrust yourself to his care. Knowing his his way way is best. Draw near near to God, and he will draw near to you. But back to our question, question, why why is Jesus Jesus feeling feeling so overwhelmed overwhelmed in the first place? Is it just that he's feeling the weakness of his own humanity in the face of his friend's betrayal and impending crucifixion? Because you have to admit, to be betrayed by your closest friends and crucified, beaten, mocked, tortured to death, even though you've done nothing wrong. It's hard to think of a worse way to die. And so you can understand why Jesus is so upset, right? But there's more going on here. See, what makes Jesus so overwhelmed is something even worse than death. You can see it in what he prays. What he begs God not to do. Have a look with me in verse 39. Verse 39, chapter 26. Going a little farther, he fell with his face to the ground and prayed, My father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me. 
yet not as I will, but as you will. And again, again in verse 42, he went away a second time and prayed, My Father, if it is not possible for this cup to be taken away unless I drink it, may your will be done. See, amidst all the betrayal and accusations and physical suffering and impending death, the thing that overwhelms Jesus to the point of death is the anticipation of drinking a cup that his Father has given him to drink. So what is this cup? It's the cup of God's wrath. A cup that is drunk down to its dregs is an image that God uses in the Old Testament prophets to talk about God's coming judgment, his righteous fury on sinners. And so God says to the prophet Jeremiah, Take from my hand this cup filled with the wine of my wrath and make all the nations whom I send you drink it. When they drink it, they will stagger and go mad because of the sword I will send among them. And God says to Judah through the prophet Ezekiel, You will drink your sister's cup, a large and deep cup. It will bring scorn and derision for it holds so much. You will be filled with drunkenness and sorrow. The cup of ruin and desolation, the cup of your sister Samaria. And in Isaiah, again, God says, Awake, awake, rise up, Jerusalem, you who have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of his wrath. You have drained it to its dregs, the goblet that makes people stagger. See, what, was, what Jesus was anticipating in the garden was a fate far worse than betrayal or death. He was anticipating having to drink the cup of God's wrath down to its dregs. The fullness of God's anger, God's judgment, the wrath of his father. His father whom he loved. Who loved him? Do you know what Jesus did on the cross? If you've been around church, a church like ours at least, for any time, you'll know the answer, right? We say, yeah, I know why Jesus died on the cross. He died to take the punishment for my sins. I learned that when I was two years old. Do you know how we're saved? Yes, I know. You have to trust in Jesus to die to forgive your sins. The words roll off our tongue. Our eyes gloss over. Yeah, I've heard it before. Tell me something else, preacher. I know all that. But do we know what the cross actually meant for Jesus, the Son of God? If you want to know what it meant, look at Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. Picture Jesus that night in the garden, a broken man. Such a contrast to this man of self-assurance and strength that we see in the rest of the Gospels. Now overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Face in the dirt, tears streaming down his face, pleading with the Father to change his mind. Consider who this is. Jesus, the Son of God, talking to his Father. Together they created the universe. Together they've existed in perfect relationship from the beginning of time, before the beginning of time. And then during his earthly life, Jesus has done nothing but serve his Father and honor him and obey him and draw others to him. And now his Father is asking him to drink the cup of his fury. His horrifying, terrifying judgment on sin that he hasn't even committed. 
See what Jesus faces in the garden as he sees the path before him is something far worse than death. Uh, as a kid, I used to love using a magnifying glass to burn holes in paper. Have you ever done that? Um, you can, if you hold it at the right distance and angle, you get this little spot that gets really hot. You can pop ants with it too. Um, actually, one time I got tired of holding the magnifying glass in the right spot, so I made this tower out of Lego that had wheels and you could adjust it and could chase the ants around. It was a bit like um, some kind of science fiction horror movie, like this giant laser. Anyway, what Jesus is facing here It's like all of God's anger and judgment on all the sin, on all of humanity, for all of history. It's focused in on Jesus at this point in history, like a giant magnifying glass. That's what Jesus is doing as he drinks the cup of God's wrath. So why is Jesus so overwhelmed? At the thought of this? Well, you can understand why, right? He's taking the sin of the world on himself for you and for me. And so it's what Jesus does with this sorrow as he faces the cup that we'll explore in the rest of our time together. Uh, Now, if you've been following along in your outlines, you might be a bit worried that we haven't even got past point two yet. Um, But don't worry, we move a lot faster from this point. But I don't want to gloss over any of this. Because if we can understand what Jesus has done, what he's facing, well, that's life-changing. It's universe-changing. This is the most significant event in all of history. So we're going to look first at how Jesus pleads to the Father, then obeys the Father, offers himself willingly. And then finally, that there was no other way. So back to Jesus in the garden. As he faces this terrifying prospect of drinking the cup, this magnifying glass hovering above him, poised to pour out God's wrath on him, he pleads, Father, if it's possible, take this cup from me. Do you realize how huge it was for Jesus to say this? For the first time and only time in history, Jesus wants something different to his Father. The Son of God, who's always done the will of his Father, the one we've seen predict his own death multiple times, now he comes face to the face with the prospect of facing God's wrath. And he's asking, pleading, Father, is there another way? Now this has got to be one of the great mysteries of the Trinity. There are many mysteries when it comes to the Trinity. Um, do you know about the Trinity? It's, uh, it's this idea that the Bible teaches that there is only one God. That's very clear in Scripture. But the Bible also teaches that God exists in three persons. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. There aren't three gods, but one God. One triune God. The Trinity. Now, uh, it's a profound mystery how it all works. Um, You can try and draw triangles with arrows, and theologians have been grappling with it for centuries. But that's what the Bible teaches. One God, three persons, not three gods. But how's this for a mystery? 
In Gethsemane, God the Son is asking God the Father, please don't go ahead with this. Please find another way. Don't make me do this. We have one person of the Trinity pleading to another person for things to be different. It's almost like this crack. I I, I tremble at the thought of it. This crack is starting to appear in this perfect unity of the Trinity. Just for a moment. But the crack quickly disappears, doesn't it? Because despite his pleading, despite being utterly overwhelmed by the prospect, Jesus obeys his Father's will. As soon as the plea comes out of his mouth, he quickly resolves to entrust himself to his Father. Yet not as I will, but as you will. May your will be done. See, Jesus is obedient to his Father, even to the point of death. Even to the point of drinking the cup of his wrath. See, the cross of Christ... The pouring out of the cup, the drinking of the cup. It's something that God the Father and God the Son did together. Just like everything else they've ever done and ever will do. There's not two gods but one. And notice too that despite all his pleading for another way, Jesus does this willingly. He's a willing sacrifice. See, one thing this passage will never let us say about the cross is that the cross is some kind of cosmic child abuse. See, ever since Jesus died, people have ridiculed the cross. You'd think it'd be one thing that Christians could agree on, right? The cross, but it's not. The cross of Christ is constantly under threat from false teaching. And one of the more recent attacks on the cross is, there is no, this is no way for a father to treat his son. It's like some kind of divine, violent, patriarchal domination. Like cosmic child abuse. So they conclude that either Jesus mustn't have actually faced God's wrath on the cross. Or if he did, this is not a God worth worshipping. Because who would treat his son like that? But Jesus isn't a child. And he's he's not not caught caught off guard here. He's not not forced forced against his will will to go ahead with this. No, Jesus goes to the cross willingly. We've already seen that in the way he prays, haven't we? Entrusting himself to his Father's will. Not my will, but yours be done. But it's not only in his prayers that Jesus shows us his willingness to drink the cup. It's what he does when he's arrested. And I think this is why his disciples flee. They're completely thrown by his approach. They were ready for a fight. Peter said, I'm ready to die for you. And it's actually Peter here we find out in John's Gospel week. He gets his sword out and he's swinging wildly. He chops off someone's ear. But Jesus stops Peter in his tracks. Look there in verse 52. Put your sword back in its place, Jesus said to him. For all who draw the sword will die by the sword. Do you not think that I can call on my Father and he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels? See, Jesus doesn't need his disciples to defend him with swords. 
He's not overpowered by this rabble of men armed with swords and clubs. He's not arrested, kicking and screaming. This is the Son of God. He goes willingly. As he says elsewhere, no one takes my life from me. I lay it down of my own accord. See, Jesus was not a victim of political or religious power brokers. He willingly let himself get arrested and eventually nailed to a cross. At any moment, he could have called down as many angels as he wanted to come to his aid. But out of loving obedience to his Father, out of love for you and me, he endured the cross. He drank the bitter cup down to its dregs. Because finally, there was no other way. See, the answer to Jesus' plea in verse 39, My Father, if it's possible, may this cup be taken from me. The answer was, No, son. I'm sorry. It's not possible. There is no other way. No other way for sins to be atoned for. No other way for humanity to be saved. No other way for this broken world to be redeemed. Because if there was another way, well then surely God would have not sacrificed his one and only son, right? The son whom he loved. It had to happen this way. And it's what scripture said must happen. And the law of God, the word of God cannot be broken. Do you see that in verse 54? The reason why Jesus doesn't call the angels down to defend him But how then would scriptures be fulfilled that say it must happen this way? Again, verse 56. But this has all taken place that the writings of the prophet might be fulfilled. It must happen this way because the Messiah was not just going to be a glorious king. He would be a suffering servant. Isaiah 53, written centuries before Jesus. It says this about the coming Savior King. He was pierced. For our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. And by his wounds we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was assigned a grave with the wicked. And with the rich in his death, though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth, yet it was the Lord's will to crush him, to cause him to suffer. The Lord makes his life an offering for sin. Predicted centuries before, this is the Messiah, taking God's wrath on himself, bearing the iniquities of us all. Do you see what Gethsemane reveals about the mystery of the cross? Jesus is overwhelmed by sorrow. He's betrayed and abandoned by his disciples. He's facing a horrible death, but worse still is the cup that he's going to drink, the cup of God's wrath. But he obeys his Father's will. He goes willingly to the cross because there was no other way. When you realize the significance of what Jesus has done for you, How can you not respond but giving your life to him in gratitude? 
when you picture this man so full of strength and assurance the rest of his life, now face to the ground, weeping with sorrow at what he was about to face for you. How can you not respond to that love? Surely there is no greater love story, no more impressive a hero, no surer hope for humanity, no better solution to the world's problems, to your problems. There's nothing greater than what Jesus went through on the cross for you and me. Let's pray. The mystery of the cross we cannot comprehend. The agony of Calvary. You, the perfect Holy One, crushed your Son, who drank the bitter cup reserved for me. Father, we thank you for what you've done for us in Jesus, a price we could never repay. Move in our hearts, Lord, that we may see what it means for Jesus to die for our sins, what it cost him, what it cost you, that we would give our lives to you and lay down our lives for others because you have laid down your life for us. We ask it in Jesus' name.